0: hello and welcome to we need to talk about movies podcast i am trev and in this special episode i am going to talk about films that i own that i haven't watched yet we need to talk about movies podcast is available on most podcast sites please if you're listening to us and you enjoy them please subscribe also rate and review us wherever you can your support is appreciated. If you want to contact us, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram at facebookandinstagram.com forward slash we need to talk about movies podcast. Feel free to come on over there. You can message us, drop a comment on any of our posts. Anyway, basically, over the years, I've bought DVDs at a rate quicker than I can watch them. I buy them from charity shops or Facebook Marketplace car boot sales anywhere like that plus i've also got a selection of over 50 that i've got from free from newspapers which are a lot of older films yeah all in all i've got over 100 films which i keep adding to which i haven't got around to watching i've put all all the names of all the films into a little pot and i just select one at random watch it and then give my review I have been doing this on the YouTube channel on Hag Films but from now on I am going to select these films at random, watch them and then at the end of each month I will review all the films that I have watched in the previous month. So this is March 2021 and here is a compilation of the reviews of those films. Hope you enjoy them. Cheers. I'm going to pick number one. You ready? I've got it. The first film to watch is First Man from Academy Award-winning director Damien Chazelle with the riveting story behind the first manned mission to the moon, focusing on Neil Armstrong in the decade leading to the historic Apollo 11 flight. A visceral, intimate account of told from Armstrong's perspective and based on the book by J.R. Hansen, The film explores the triumphs and the cost on Armstrong, his family, his colleagues, and the nation itself for one of the most dangerous missions in history. So, yep, I'm going to stick that on and then we'll discuss it afterwards. Just watched First Man and really enjoyed it. A really great film. This handheld camera work had a documentary feel, but it was more personal than a documentary, you know? It just... Even with sort of music over the top of things, it never felt sort of fantastic. It always felt realistic. A really great historical drama. Ryan Gosling, playing Neil Armstrong, is sort of introvert again. Obviously, being an astronaut, you, you get the impression that he's a measured and calculated sort of character, but you see that there's the the history with his the loss of his daughter. Him dealing with grief and Claire Foy's character is there to sort of help bring that out Claire Foy again uh, brilliant in this she brings a lot of reality to her performance it's not a Hollywood wife you see in a lot of things the wife often almost glamorized in a sense but she really brings it down to earth and I think Ryan Gosling he's just great at that sort of introverted character if you want to cast anyone to say a lot without saying a lot. Ryan Gosling's your man. The film's littered with recognisable actors. None of them sort of Hollywood A-listers that take you out of the movie. But Corey Stoll as Buzz Aldrin. I recognise him from Ant-Man. You know, he's the antagonist in that. Ant-agonist. So when he turns up in this as Buzz Aldrin and instantly you, Buzz Aldrin's painted as this sort of very blunt and... Sort of says the wrong thing is this character that you instantly you don't like. I never expected that with Buzz Aldrin. But this, it's a historical drama about the lunar landing, Apollo 11. If any film ever made you feel as close to being an astronaut yourself it's this one. Damien Chazelle really captured the atmosphere of spaceflight. Every little vibration, every noise with some really tight cinematography and camera work just create this real uh, claustrophobic sense with a great soundscape. Yeah he's really put together this just a, this epic tale but in such a way that it's the word I keep sort of spring to mind is grounded. The performances were grounded the story was grounded and you know it's about space exploration but it's such a grounded film. Damon Chazelle is the youngest winner of the Best Director Oscar, which he won for La La Land. It's only sort of in the last six months that I watched Whiplash. It's a film I wanted to watch, never got round to it. I literally watched it twice in a week. <laughs> a great film. Um, and I think this is another one. Sort of really great scenes for me, were obviously the moon landing at the end. You're looking forward to seeing that you know, you're waiting for him to say the inevitable one small step for man. When you hear it, it's a sort of a goosebump moment, and then it's just silent. You're on the moon, there is no sound, it's just really great. But I think the standout scene for me was the scene where they first practice the docking and then they start banking and they just sort of start spinning out of control. Uh, that scene was just agonizing and really great, tense scene. Yeah, really impressive film. One I'm probably gonna think about for a, a day or two and probably end up watching again. Damien Chazelle, a director that I'm definitely gonna keep an eye on and now I'm gonna have to watch La La Land. It's never really been a film that I've wanted to race out to watch, but now you know I've seen Whiplash, I've seen First Man, really impressed with this director. What up G's, it's Trevor here, and it's time for another films that I own, that I have not yet watched. So, here's my pot of titles. Have a rummage, got one. Right, it's an old one. Brighton Rock, somewhere in here, this collection here. These are ones that you used to get free in newspapers. There it is, Brighton Rock, an old British film, 1947. Directed by John Bolton Starring Richard Attenborough Hermione Bradley And William Hartnell Adapted from Graham Greene's classic novel Offered Richard Attenborough One of his best early roles Pinky Brown The juvenile leader of a seedy gang Who ran a protection racket Based at Brighton Racecourse After he orders the murder of a rival It seems naive young waitress Rose May know too much So Pinky decides to keep her quiet By marrying her but it was never going to be so easy so uh, yeah let's have a look at Brighton Rock and I'll give you my review afterwards okay so just watched Brighton Rock set in Brighton in between the first and the second world war and gangs all sort of fighting for control of Brighton it's based on a Graham Greene book he wrote the third man it's quite a gritty story There's some moody cinematography. I think when the film first started, the very first shot was a shot of Dickie Attenborough's face and it was very dark and moody and I thought, oh, I think I'm gonna like this. Then that starts off to be a a montage of all the characters you're gonna see and it's a very cheesy montage. This is the opening credits rolling. The music was sort of really ill-fitting, which it was a lot through the film, to be honest. The, The music never really fit the film. It was a bit of an awful soundtrack. He basically, they kill this guy at the beginning, trying to create an alibi. And one of them gets spotted trying to fix the alibi by this young waitress. So Dickie Attenborough wants to sort of protect himself. So he's keeping her close and then he marries her so that she can't testify against her own husband or something, something to that effect. Dickie Attenborough plays it a bit sort of cool, really over the top in the very first scene. Just like in Jurassic Park, actually, when he's over the top with his Scottish accent in the first scene, and then no Scottish accent for the rest of the film. But um, yeah, he's a bit over the top in the first scene. And then he's playing it very sort of dark and moody, solemn. Uh, but sort of everyone else around him is very sort of. It's like watching Mr. Chumley Warner, the old old Harry Enfield sketches. So he's trying to convince this girl anyway, he, he gets her on his side, he sort of almost threatens her by saying, oh, you know, some other girl spoke out and then she ended up with her face smashed in. That's the part I can't, I can't get my head into that. I can't see why she would fall for him when he comes off threatening straight away. You know, it's quite dark, it's quite serious and I imagine the book probably works better than the film. The film was a bit patchy. A lot of the action scenes, they were brave with the editing. Sometimes it worked. Sometimes there was some good shots, really interesting shots, and low angles, which I thought was quite interesting. It's all brave for the time it's made. It's not, you know, a lot of stuff you watch from then is quite stationary and fixed, so it's quite creative with it, but it just, now it just seems really dated. And The scene where he actually kills the bloke in the ghost train goes from being quite interesting, sort of visually interesting to just him giving this ridiculous scream and then as if he's been pushed off of the train but you've got to remember you know this is 47 48 so it's a long time ago and I'd imagine it was really gritty for that time and and I'd imagine you know audiences in 1947 would probably like (gasps) gasp to that I think the best part of it was the woman Ida, who's sort of this bullshi uh, woman who met the chap before he got murdered. She doesn't believe that he's just killed himself, you know, which is the story that's going around. So she's trying to find out the truth. She played the character really well. She was quite loud and brash, and um, yeah, she actually come across as probably the most realistic character in there didn't seem quite so sort of hammy and stagey, you know, theatrical. But um, the girlfriend who Dickie Attenborough married, the little waitress, Rose, she she played it very sweet and innocent and you just don't believe her character. You don't know where she's come from. And then she, oh, record your voice for me. And he records his voice for her on this record player, but she hasn't got a record player to hear the record. And he's actually told her that he hates her and and all the time then you're thinking oh this record's going to come out and she, you know she's going to find out that he's not as honest as she's making out but then the record at the end the girl plays it and you think ah oh, she's finally going to hear it because she won't accept that he's horrible but where he's tried to destroy the record it's scratched so all she hears is him saying i love you i love you i love you i love you i didn't expect that ending i think that was the one bit where i was like ah oh, that happened i didn't expect that But, I mean, sure for its day it was probably a great film. Uh, I did notice also on Google that they remade it, so that might be worth having a look at. But, um, as far as sort of videos that I haven't seen, probably never watch it again. Anyway, so that was another film that I own that I haven't watched. I've watched it now. Brighton Rock, number two. Hi guys, Trevor here. Another films I own, but haven't watched yet. This is episode number three. I've got my tub of movie titles here. Let's have a look. Rummagey, rummagey, rummage. Have I got one? I wonder what it is. The Fog. John Carpenter's The Fog. So, what is over here? John Carpenter's The Fog. Antonio Bay, California has turned a hundred years old and getting ready to celebrate its centennial year. But as the residents of the small quaint harbour town begin to prepare for the festivities, a mysterious cloud of fog appears upon the shore and begins to make its way across the town leaving a trail of horrifying slaughter. The fog is an incredibly atmospheric and effective ghost story that confirms John Carpenter as a master of terror. So I'm quite excited to watch this. I'm gonna go put it on now and I'll let you know afterwards what I think. Thank you. Okay, so film number three, The Fog, just been watched. It comes from an era of films that I really love. The 70s, there's something about the 70s films for me. It started off really atmospheric. It's a slow, sort of a lazy start with the radio playing, from the lighthouse, sort of easygoing jazz music, whilst there's eerie sounds, bells ringing and mirrors clanging, bottles rattling, and it slowly builds up and things, you know, electrical appliances are going on, clocks start smashing and things. It really puts me in mind of the opening sequence of Closing Counters of the Third Kind. It almost sounds the same. It's a good build up of atmosphere, the opening sequences are good when the, the fog comes in on the boat and as the fog clears you see the silhouettes of the sort of the pirates and that that is used well throughout the film actually is quite effective and i can imagine it being more eerie and frightening back then there are some really good shots in it some of the mist shots worked really well sometimes the mist and the light was a bit clunky the things that like you know spielberg and that were doing with ilm at the same sort of time this was spielberg on a budget you know but i did love the soundtrack the musical score and the music within the film of all the sort of jazz playing from the radio station and then you got john carpenter's own score similar to that of the halloween score sort of synthesized music. But it echoed the the foghorn that sort of goes constantly throughout the last half of the film. You constantly hear that foghorn and the music sort of weaves in and out of that. And I really enjoyed that. So there is a definite style with John Carpenter films. And it's a style that, you know, has earned itself a cult following. Also now it's, it's often replicated. Even now, in things like Stranger Things, have obviously been influenced. Going on to the cast, the characters of Finn. We see a cameo of the director John Carpenter in the church, cleaning up the church for the priest, Hal Holbrook. You've got Jamie Lee Curtis, who also obviously worked with John Carpenter in Halloween. She enters the town hitchhiking through, is picked up by Nick, the hero. I oh don't know, within seconds all the glass smashes and he's like, let's get out of here. Cuts to the next scene of them and they're in bed together. You know, they've just slept together. Only met her minutes before. You know, back in the in the 70s, they didn't hold back, did they, you know? That sort of storyline wouldn't be plausible anymore, would it? John Carpenter, you know, he must have been filled to bits to have Jamie Lee Curtis again, but also to be able to get Jamie Lee Curtis's mum, the uh, famous Janet Lee who plays Mrs Williams in this, who's like the organizer of the town's centennial celebrations. So of course, Janet Lee is famous for Psycho, Marion Crane in Psycho. And we know that obviously, you know, that's a big influence on John Carpenter. Out of Halloween, this character's named after characters from Psycho. I love the fact that it's only an hour and a half long. I love the pace, but it's sort of got f- two or three storylines going on. You've got Nick and Elizabeth, Jamie Lee Curtis's character, sort of running around investigating and Stevie Wayne up in the tower is sort of on the radio but orchestrating the rescue of the town and her son. Elizabeth and Nick are sort of following her directions she's telling everyone where the, the mist is going next so then you've got Janet Lee's character and there you go to visit the priest Hal Holbrook, Father Malone, he's like a poor man's Murray Hamilton who played the, the mayor in Jaws but they do look very similar too so they go to visit him in the church and he's found this journal. This story is being, unfolding as Nick and Elizabeth are on the abandoned trawler, investigating. And I love the way that it sort of switches from one story to the other. You know, all these stories happening side by side. It's a quick film, it's quick pace, and there's nothing better than a short film. (laughs) There's a reason I never really liked horror films when I was younger, and it wasn't because they were frightening. It was completely the opposite. It was because they were cheesy and this film is about as cheesy as they come. And horrors always have a way of setting themselves up really well and then sort of fizzling out and becoming sort of silly in the end. And I think that Close Encounters of the Third Kind was probably more frightening than this. I think Jaws was probably more frightening than this. It, what is the difference? Why would this have been made for an adult audience? I mean, it's not gratuitous. Nothing is more gratuitous than the Alex Kitner scene in Jaws. But, um, you know, I did quite enjoy watching this. As I said, it was all right. Not my cup of tea. I'm glad I've watched it. It's been on my shelf for, I don't even know how long that's been on there. I can understand why people enjoy this sort of film just not for me. I like a horror that's a bit more psychological. Hi guys, it's Trevor here again from We Need To Talk About Movies podcast and I'm back for another films I own that I haven't watched yet. So I've got my selection of titles. So this is film number four. What's it gonna be? Exciting. Got one? Okay. A fistful of Dollars. Let's find it. Alphabetical... G E F F. Fistful of Dollars. Clint Eastwood. Directed by Sergio Leone, the first of the Spaghetti Westerns. Fistful of Dollars became an instant cult hit. It also launched the film careers of Italian writer-director Sergio Leone, a little-known American television actor called Clint Eastwood... As the lean, cold eyed, Cobra Quick gunfighter, Clint became the first of the anti heroes. Fistful of Dollars is the Western taken to the extreme with unremitting violence, gritty realism, and tongue in cheek humor. Leone's direction is taut and stylish, and the visuals are striking. All are accented by renowned film composer Ennio Morricone's quirky, haunting score. Ennio Morricone. Okay. I'm going to stick this on, watch that, and then I'll let you know what I think. Cheers. Okay, so I've just watched Fistful of Dollars. Uh, you may have heard in the podcast, in episode one, me and Nate talked about westerns not being a genre that either of us had ever really got into. So, yeah, I didn't know how <laughs> I would enjoy it, but I did really enjoy the film. It was quite a raw film but it's quite short. It took a little while to get into, you know, the dubbing was a bit off-putting because obviously it's filmed over in Europe. It's the spaghetti westerns. I think Clint Eastwood, I think he's the only American in it. And everyone else obviously talking Spanish, I, I assume, and then dubbed over. So that was a bit hard going, but harder than subtitles, I think. But it actually made for a really sort of interesting viewing. Some of the direction, some of the shots, the choice of shots, it sort of flips from wide angle, sort of panoramic shots. I just love some of the landscapes to really close up, extreme close ups of the various characters reacting or observing each other. So if you don't know the story, Clint Eastwood is the man with no name. He turns up into this town there's two families warring the rojos and the baxters clint eastwood turns up i think on the payroll of the rojos who are the villains of the story and he turns up and he kills some of the baxters and then he starts turns he plays the two families against each other I, I found it hard to think are they are they both bad or is it just the the rojos that are bad Because he sort of allows, through his own actions, he sort of fans the flames of this rivalry and then one family sort of completely destroys the other and he ends up sort of the hero wiping out the bad guys. But at the same time, he's set them up as well. I couldn't get my head around that, you know, but maybe it's, it's the Wild West. We don't need sort of right and wrong. It isn't as plain cut as that. But... Clint Eastwood was fantastic in it, really good. Some of his schemes were fantastic. He never let on his plans, but you could always tell he had something up his sleeve. So Clint Eastwood's hero, he's sort of a good moral fibre. He sees this broken family at the very beginning and a little boy. And he sort of makes it his mission to sort of mend the the hurts here. Uh, I quite enjoyed the relationship between him and the saloon owner. And there was humour throughout the film, you know, there's quite a lot of humour in it. It's always touted as being one of those violent westerns. I haven't seen enough westerns to know what westerns were like before this. I think any western that I have seen has been sort of after this was made anyway. And probably a lot more violent in this day and age than they was back then anyway. You know, I haven't seen any of the John Wayne westerns or the James Stewart westerns, so... I can only take it as said that these are the more violent ones. It had a real sort of authentic feel to it. And I suppose having, I, I guess, Spanish and Italians playing the the roles of the Mexicans. I take it they're supposed to be Mexicans. It felt more authentic than when you see, I've seen clips of some Westerns where it's Americans blacked up to play Indians. Which is quite awful and I mean they still were doing that in the 80s weren't they so uh, this had a lot more authentic feel so you can see why they made such a big impression some of the horse chases I thought were quite good you know they really put these horses through the paces the scene where where there's a like a, a, a massacre with a machine gun and the horses are just falling left right and center and it's it's quite impressive isn't it stunt horses and you just think I hope no horses were hurt during the making of this movie. The theme tune as well. I've, I've known it all my life, but I never really knew where it had come from. So as soon as it started, it's like, oh, yeah, I know this. And um, you've seen bits of this film parodied in so much, uh, Back to the Future mainly, and the bit at the end when he's got the, the shield protecting his heart And I think it's in Back to the Future where at the end of that they're like, oh, well done, that was really clever, Clint Eastwood, because he calls him Mr Eastwood in that. And then they said, but uh, what if he just shot you in the head? And I was thinking that the whole time watching this. Surely, if you've just wasted seven rounds shooting into someone's heart, you just think, oh, I'll just shoot him in the head, cocky bastard. Anyway, yep, yeah, so I did enjoy it, it was good fun. It's part of a trilogy, so like I say, I've put the title back in here, and every time I pick it out, I'll watch another one of the trilogy. Hi guys, it's Trevor here. It's time for another selection from my films that I own but I haven't watched yet. Here we go, here's my box of titles. Okay, got one. Crazy Heart. Crazy Heart. Now this is one I've, I've owned for a long time and have always wanted to watch. And I've gone to choose it on a lot of occasions, but then I was like, ah, oh, choose something else. Winner of two Academy Awards, Jeff Bridges for Best Actor and Best Original Song, of The Weary Kind. Academy Award winner Jeff Bridges delivers the performance of a lifetime in Crazy Heart. Powerful story of a country music star's rocky road to redemption. Bridges stars as Bad Blake, a boozy, broken-down singer who reaches for salvation with the help of Jean Maggie Gillinghall. But will Bad's hard-living ways and Crazy Heart cost him his last chance at a comeback? So, Jeff Bridges, Maggie Gillinghall... Uh, on the back, we can see there's Robert Duval in there as well. Yeah, one I'm really keen to watch. So why don't we go and watch that now, and I'll give you my brief first impressions afterwards. Okay, so Crazy Heart, another film I really enjoyed, actually. There's something about Jeff Bridges, isn't he's, he's just a, a legend. Ever since playing the dude in the Big Lebowski, from the outset you're almost put in mind of Big Lebowski. He's got the long hair, he's got the beard. He turns up in a bowling alley and it's almost framed the same as when he meets the stranger in the bowling alley at the beginning of Big Lebowski. Whether that's done as a callback to the Big Lebowski, I don't know. We joined Jeff Bridges, he's a country singer on the road. There's something about this story that I thought, you know, it's the same sort of story we've seen quite a bit. And especially at the beginning where Jeff Bridges, you know, he's picking out his booze for his his show. So, you know, he's an alcoholic and he's coughing up, you know, he's coughing a lot. At the beginning when Maggie Gillinghall is interviewing Bad Blake, she asks what his real name is. And he says, I'm always going to be Bad Blake and no one's going to know my name until it turns up on a gravestone. And it's this ominous... Telling and you think, well, you know where this story's going from that. But well, He's obviously in a rut, playing these sort of dead-end jobs. At the, the waning end of a, a decent career, he's quite resentful of the fact that he's now just sort of working for these tiny little bars and bowling alleys for peanuts. He can't even afford to pay for his drinks. So he's a country singer called Bad Blake and he's interviewed by Maggie Gillinghall, who aren't seen in anything for ages, actually. Yeah, she's lovely, isn't she? She's great in this, the relationship between her and her son. It's portrayed really well, and she sees this side of Jeff Bridges. They sort of fall in love, and it brings out this side of him that's obviously been buried under years of sort of travelling the road, self absorbed sort of obsession and alcoholism. He befriends her and her son. And you can see that she's torn between being not awestruck as such, but she sees this kindness in him and she's falling for him, but she can also see this darker side of him. And they sort of form this friendship and you can see it's making him think of times of his own life that he's missed and his own son. But, you know, the question is, is it going to be enough? Is he too far gone to sort of put errors of his way right? It's humorous from the outset. There's lots of good comedy in it, and it's a really warm film, and sort of the Texas landscape. Massive vistas of rolling clouds for miles and miles. It really is an interesting, warm-looking film. So it got me thinking as I was watching it who the director was. So I looked up the name of the director. The name didn't ring a bell to me, Scott Cooper. But then I did notice that he'd done a couple of films that I had seen. One Black Mass, which I mentioned in our departed podcast the other week, a gangster film all about Whitey Bulger, played by Johnny Depp in the film, a really good film. The other one was a film called Get Low, which I had seen. It's been in my mind, but I could never remember what it was called. It's a really good film. I'm going to have to try and dig it out because it was Bill Murray, um, Robert Duval. Uh, it's another story of redemption, of a bit like this. Anyway, completely different film. So, this, this film is, like I say, it's easy going, it's humorous from the outset. The first time he pulls up at the bowling alley, he climbs out of his car and he's, he's empty in a piss bottle, you know. So you can see he spends a lot of time in his car straight away. The music is sort of, obviously it's country music. A lot of it's sung by Jeff Bridges himself, you can tell. And Colin Farrell turns up later on as another country singer who is now the big star of country. Jeff Bridges was his mentor, but now he's gone on to bigger things, and Jeff Bridges is taken by the wayside, and he gets a bit resentful of that relationship. But you get the idea there's been this big fight, but I think it's all in Jeff Bridges' head when you finally meet Colin Farrell. He's got nothing but awe for Jeff Bridges, and I think he's trying to reach out and get Jeff Bridges to write some songs for him. You know, he's trying to help Um, Robert Duvall also turns up in the film as an old friend of Jeff Bridges and their relationship seems really authentic as well Robert Duvall as well is trying to help Bridges sort of leave the demons of his past and the drink but it's never a preachy film you know it's never sort of too far one way or the other it's a nice sort of level feel to the film and really easy watching it's funny to see In a non-speaking role, the woman from Donnie Darko, I think she's like the leader of the dance troupe in that. She's like this real naggy sort of old hag of a woman. Well, in this she appears. She doesn't say anything. You just see her watching him sort of in awe in the audience. And then he finishes his show. And then it cuts to the next morning in, in a motel room. And you see her asleep and him sneaking out back in the back behind It's just some real got comedy moments and you can see the sort of life that he leads and the life that he is trying to leave behind. So yeah, I thought that was a really top film. Uh, I'd highly recommend that, Crazy Heart. Another film I own that I have not watched yet. So there you go. Five films watched and reviewed from my collection of DVDs that I own but haven't yet watched. But what out of those five would be my favourite? I think, to be honest... I enjoyed A Fistful of Dollars the most out of all those films, which really surprised me. And it's actually given me the urge to watch more Western films as well. So uh, there's a fair few more Western films in my collection I haven't watched. So yeah, watch this space. I'm sure I'll pick some out along the way. Anyway, thanks ever so much for listening. If you've enjoyed this, please like and don't forget to rate us and subscribe to us and we will have more We Need To Talk About Movies podcasts with myself and Nathan coming every Friday. So for now, until next month when I do another one of these, take care and see you all soon. Cheers.